Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at the Gitarre. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Rudy Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this is part four in our ongoing series of the Great Escape to Shanghai, the Great Shanghai Escape. And we, um, if you want to check out our previous episodes, check them out, parts one through three. There will be many more to come. Um, and of course, if you want to check out all the other episodes in our archive, you can find them on where, whatever platform you get your podcasts. And please share it with your friends and family. And that is the best way to help the podcast. And uh, Jewish History Soundbites, you can also leave a rating and, um, and a review if you want. So we spoke about the beginning of the search for visas and then how that search becomes desperate in the summer of 1940 with the Soviet occupation of Lithuania. And this episode is going to focus on what to many will be the climax of the story on the Dutch Curaçao visas and the Japanese transit visas and who the heroes of this story are. Um, and I did mention it briefly. Um, I called it an introductory episode to this series. Um, it was a couple of years ago, I think. Um, and it was about Nathan Gutwirt, the Tel Yeshiva student from Holland, who is one of the main uh, players of the story, who I'm going to talk about a lot today. Um, so if you want to see that episode, it was, I don't remember how long ago, but that would give a little bit more of a background uh, to the story. So this is really the central part of the entire story, how these Polish-Jewish refugees, for the most part, it was started by a couple of Dutch citizens, but most of those who eventually got these visas were Polish-Jewish refugees, how they were able to obtain the Dutch Curaçao visas and subsequently, or as a result of that, the Japanese transit visas from Chiyuni Sugihara, the Japanese consul, how that transpired, 
I hope we get it all in in one. If not, we'll just continue in the next installment. So we are in Soviet-occupied Lithuania in the summer of 1940. Just a reminder, the Soviets start coming in on June 15th, and Lithuania is formally incorporated into the Soviet Union on August 3rd, less than two months later, and they start to close up the consulates. So the time that we're talking, the time frame is, I guess we'll say mid-July, more towards the end of July, till like mid to late August. It's roughly a month, a month and a half of time, perhaps the beginning of September even, if we stretch it a bit. Um, uh, Warhaftig, Zorach Warhaftig said that he, in his memoir, that he was pretty much the only one still working in an official capacity for a Jewish organization focusing on uh, on the emigration, assisting emigration for refugees, um, because a lot of the other offices were forcibly shut down by the Soviets. He himself no longer had an office. He worked in private apartments, in parks, street corners. The Soviets were closing down the foreign consulates because now everything has to go through Moscow. And all of this obviously is leading to this desperation because the window of opportunity to leave is being slammed shut. I just want to mention one other overlooked point to consider, and that is the military progression of World War II, and as a result, the sealing off of various other escape routes. Um, the May In the spring of 1940, the uh, German army um, begins its assault on the west. So the Norway, uh, Denmark and Norway in the spring of 1940, followed by the Low Countries, Holland and Belgium, and then the fall of France in June. So by the time the Soviets occupy Lithuania, the entire, pretty much, almost the entire Western Europe, including crucially Denmark and Norway, because that seals off the water uh, escape route, the sea escape route from the Baltic states. So they are under Nazi occupation. Um, the Mediterranean Sea becomes a, a theater of operations for the British Navy and the German Navy, Italian Navy, and therefore it is difficult to escape through the south as well. becomes more and more difficult. And pretty much um, by, by the summer of 1940, the only possible escape route is east, through the Soviet Union to the Pacific Ocean, to Vladivostok, the Soviet Union's gateway to the to the uh, to the Pacific, to the Far East, and that seems to be the only escape route. And this is a result, direct result of World War II battles and the positions of the Allied and Axis navies. So there, there are two stories here, and they're going to overlap. And I'm going to explain. Um, we have the story of Pepe Sternheim who was married to Lewin, so she was Peppy Sternheim Lewin, or Peppy Lewin, Mrs. Uh, Peppy Lewin, um, and she um, was a Sternheim, obviously, from birth, and she had grown up in Holland, had been a Dutch citizen, and then she married a fellow by the name of Dr. Isaac Lewin, or Levin, um, and in, who, who was a Polish Jew, lived in Lodz, from a very, very prominent Polish-Jewish family, um, big in Agodis Yisrael. His father was the Reich Rav, Reb Aaron Levin, and he himself was a leader in Agodis Yisrael, Dr. Isaac Levin. He later became a member of the Lodz City Council as a member of the Agodis Yisrael. He was a very prominent individual, a very prominent family, and he marries this Dutch citizen. She loses her Dutch citizenship upon marriage to 
um, to 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 Lewin, and um, and now she finds herself. They had a child in 1936 named Nathan Levin, who today is uh, the the very very famous and prominent lawyer attorney uh, Nat Lewin. Um, so he he um, this is his parents, and um, and now in the summer of 1939, her Dutch family, who still are Dutch citizens, including her brother Leo Sternheim and her mother. I think Rachel Sternheim. Her father was also there, but he returned to uh, Holland um, when the war broke out and unfortunately was later killed. But part of her family stayed with her in Poland and they escape to Lithuania. So she, um, being a former Dutch citizen and being together with members of her family who were still Dutch citizens, she's trying to get out and she thinks to turn very naturally to the Dutch ambassador in the area. And she writes a letter in July 1940, during this time that we're talking about, to the Dutch ambassador in Riga, who was the only real Dutch ambassador, a fellow by the name of Linert P.J. de Decker. And, and she writes a letter to him, can she get out somewhere to a Dutch colony? Why a Dutch colony? Why not back to Holland? Because as of May 1940, Holland was under Nazi occupation. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind as well, to get to some Dutch colonies. So what what Dutch colonies were out there? So there's the Dutch East Indies, which today is known as Indonesia, when those days was a Dutch colony. There's the Dutch colonies in uh, South America and the Caribbean, such as Suriname and Curaçao, an island off the coast of Venezuela, and others, several others there. And uh, th- this was these were also seemingly viable options. And Decker... Um, writes back to her and says, yes, you can go to the Dutch colony of Curaçao. And you don't need a visa to get to Curaçao. Um, It's dependent on the governor's permission. It's his discretion whether to allow people in. There is no visa required. It's completely based on the governor's permission. And what, um, what, what Mrs. Levin was able to secure from de Decker was that can her passport be stamped that no visa is required for Curaçao, and leave out the second part, that you need the governor's permission. Now, no visa required for Curaçao is a meaningless sentence. It does, it's not a visa, it's not anything official. And especially if you leave out the second uncomfortable piece of information, that you need the governor's permission. So this is a crucial, um, you know, this is a crucial piece of information missing. And De Decker agreed. And he said, yes, send me your passport. And he had it stamped. And then he um, had her uh, had, had, had her take it, the rest of her family taken care of through, via the honorary consul in Kovno, who was not an ambassador. We'll get to him in a second. A fellow by the name of Jan Zwartendijk. Um, and he um, took care of the rest of the travel, travel documents from the family. So that is the Lewin side of the, of the story. On the Gutwirt side of the story, so Nathan Gutwirt was a also a Dutch. He was a actual Dutch citizen, not a former Dutch citizen, and he had um, le- he had come to learn in the Tel's yeshiva, and he was a foreigner in a Soviet-occupied country. So he wanted to leave. So naturally, he turns to his ambassador, and he asks uh, he asks the ambassador sends a letter to the ambassador to Decker. Um, at around the same time, it could be a few days later. Um, that's a big question. Who is first? We'll get to that soon. Um, but he he got, he writes a letter to De Decker, also in July of 1940, and he says, "I'm a Dutch citizen. How do I get out? 
Um, and and uh, and he says, Dutch citizen, no problem. I mean, you can go to any Dutch colony. You don't need a visa altogether. And there was no issue with the visa for a real Dutch citizen. Um, you don't even need the governor's permission. A Dutch citizen is allowed to go to a Dutch territory. So, um, so, uh, so, Gutwirt himself did not even need a a uh, a um, a uh, visa or or this special clause of no visa required. What happened was is that Gutwirt wanted to help some of his friends in Tells. And he wanted to help some of his friends who were actually Lithuanian citizens. And by because of that, they were also Soviet citizens. So ultimately, he was unable to help them because they were not eligible for Soviet exit visas. But at this point, at least they were trying to get end visas. So he says he sends a second letter to De Decker. And he says, OK, I'm a Dutch citizen and I don't need to get in a visa to go to Curacao. But is, I have friends who are Lithuanian citizens and they will need a visa. So how do they get in? So he says, well, there is no visa required for Curacao, but you need the governor's permission, and the governor will not give you permission. Now, in both of these letters, the Decker wrote to Gutfeert that he said, by the way, you'll never get out anyway, you or your friends, because the Russians will never allow transit. The Soviets will never allow transit. And that was because Holland and the Soviet Union did not have diplomatic relations. They didn't, they, they, the government of Holland did not recognize the Soviet Union. So the Decker believed that no one would be able to get out by traversing the Soviet Union anyway. So he actually recommended to Gutwir to go back to Holland. He said, who cares if it's occupied by the Nazis? Uh, apparently he did not realize that Gutwir was Jewish, so otherwise he probably would not have recommended him to go back to Nazi-occupied Holland. But the Decker believed that the Soviets would not allow so a transit uh, to traverse the Soviet Union to get to Curacao because they did not have diplomatic relations with Holland. So he said, anyways, you're not going to be able to go. So, but if you somehow manage to go, so you don't need a visa because it's the government's, uh, the governor's uh, discretion, he can give permission. So then... Then, um, then Gutwirt asks, can you drop the second half of the sentence? Can you say, no visa required for Curacao? Let me get the exact language, what it said. The exact, what was eventually stamped by Zwartendijk on the passports was the Dutch consulate in Kaunas. Kaunas is Kovna. So the Dutch consulate in Kaunas hereby declares that for the admission of foreigners to Suriname, Curacao, and other Dutch possessions in America, an entry visa is not required. That was the text of the so-called Curacao visa. And, and, um, and, and it does not include, obviously, the clause that you need the governor's permission. So De Decker says, the governor will never give you permission. So it's useless getting these visas. The governor is not going to give you any permission. By the way, um, that happens to be correct. A fascinating end part of the story, um, which I'm jumping ahead of the story, obviously, is that the governor of Curacao at the time, I forgot his name, we do know his name, 
forgot his name, he later became the ambassador to the state of Israel, like, I don't know, 30 years later or something. He was the Dutch ambassador to the state of Israel. And Warhoftig, Zarah Warhoftig, was a minister in the Israeli government at the time, and he met this Dutch ambassador. And it turns out that he was the governor of Curacao. Now, obviously, not a single refugee ever made it to Curacao. I think that's well known. Um, so these, these Curacao visas weren't really, they were dubious visas. Right? We're going to explain that. But Warhoftig asked him if he knew about the story. And the first time this former governor had heard, heard the story of the Curacao visas was from Zorach Warhoftig like 30 years after the war. So he didn't even know about it. Um, so Warhoftig said, let me ask you something. Going back as governor then, knowing what you know then, not, not knowing what you know now, what would your position have been? Would you have allowed those refugees in or not? And the guy said... I would not have allowed a single one in. I would have turned them back just like Cuba and the United States did to this famous ship, the St. Louis, that left Hamburg in 1938 and 39, excuse me. And uh, and a very infamous story of the St. Louis uh, of Jewish refugees that left Germany and was denied entry in Cuba and then later in Florida as well. So he says, I would have done the same exact thing that Cuba and the United States did to the St. Louis. I would have done to the refugees coming to Curacao. So the governor never intended to allow a single one in. And we know that for a fact. He told that to Tavaraftig when he was ambassador in the state of Israel later, many years later. So in any event, so this was a crucial thing. The Decker agreed to drop the second half for these friends of Gutwirt, who were Lithuanian citizens and ultimately were not able to get out because they were Soviet citizens. And uh, unfortunately, they perished. But he tried getting them, got them these end visas for Curacao from the Decker. Um, and he left out the part about needing the governor's permission. And there would be just this, this uh, no visa required for Curacao. Now, the whole idea of the of this being considered a visa is almost preposterous. It, it, it is. It's not a visa. It says no visa required. Even using the word visa in the context of Curacao made no diplomatic sense. The, the, the visa doesn't make sense in the sentence. There is no visa. It's irrelevant, and it shouldn't even be considered a visa. But the Decker agreed, and the question is why the Decker agreed, and um, no one really knows. Um, it's likely that he supposed it would never work anyway because he believed the Soviets would never allow transit of refugees across because Holland and the Soviet Union did not have diplomatic relations. It's also likely that he agreed because since the Dutch government was in exile in London, so he figured there's not much oversight here. He can do, he has more latitude to do what he wants, so why not? Let's try out something wild like this. Or because he thought the governor would never allow them in anyway, so at least he looks good, he's trying to help out. Or maybe he was just a good-hearted person, and here's like a guy trying to help a few of his friends. It was only, uh, Gutfried says in his testimony that it was only like 15 of his friends, 20 of his friends at most, that he was trying to help out. And that was it. So he said, okay, fine, let's help out a couple of Lithuanians. You know, and uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that. But maybe there was other reasons as well. But in, in the bottom line is that the Decker agreed. Not only did he agree, but he wrote in a letter back to Gutwirt that he authorized the Dutch honorary consul in Kovna 
to stamp the passports in that fashion. Jan Zwartendijk. Now, who is Jan Zwartendijk? He was not really a consul or a diplomat or an ambassador or anything. He was a businessman. Um, in fact, he and Gutfeld were friends from before the war. There were not that many Dutch citizens living in Lithuania in the 1930s. Um, and when uh, and the Philips company was this electronics company that was a Dutch-owned company, and they had a branch in Kovna, and... Um, when Gutfeld was once like a Benazmanim, a summer vacation in, in Kovna, from Tells, he noticed the Phillips sign. So he walked in, he said, oh, familiar, Dutch, he got all excited, you know, a little piece of home. And he went in, and there was this young, uh, classy businessman inside. So they started schmoozing in Dutch, and they became friends. And, and um, uh, Zwartendijk used to send Gutfeld newspapers, Dutch newspapers, twice a week. So they, they, they were in touch. So they knew each other. That also helped. And and um, the honorary consul, which was not a real diplomatic position um, before that, because Riga, which was in Latvia, was the real uh, uh, um, uh, embassy of, of, of Holland in the Baltic States, where De Decker was. De Decker was a real diplomat. But there was always an honorary consul in Lithuania, and that was a Baltic German who had German Nazi sympathies. I forgot his name. And he was dismissed, obviously, after May in 1940 when Holland is invaded. They don't want someone with Nazi sympathies being their representative in Lithuania. And they didn't really have anyone else. Uh, there wasn't too many people to choose from. So they, the Dutch government in exile asked uh, this this fellow, Zwartendijk, who had zero diplomatic experience, um, and, and he wasn't a diplomat at all. They said, look, you're a businessman. Phillips has an office, so at least you have an office space, you have a place to meet people. So can you act as our honorary consul for you know a, t- a period of time until we find something more permanent? Now, it wasn't something more permanent because the Soviets shut all the consulates very soon afterwards. So Zwartendijk, this guy with no diplomatic experience, who never had any more for the rest of his life, he was never a diplomat afterwards, he was a businessman for the rest of his life, he was this, this sort of honorary consul for a period of about two months, maybe less, um, until the Soviets clo- nationalized Phillips and closed the consulate um, in August 1940. And he is authorized by De Decker to write these, uh, first he hand-wrote it and then he made a stamp, this official-looking stamp of these so-called Curacao visas that said the Dutch consulate in Kaunas hereby declares that for the admission of foreigners to Suriname, Curacao, and other Dutch possessions in America, an entry visa is not required. I think it was written in French, if I'm not mistaken. And um, Zwartendijk goes ahead and does it. Now, what happens next is fascinating. Um, the, the, there's a, one of, one of uh, Gutfeld's friends from Tells was a fellow named Berkovich. Berkovich was affiliated with Mizrahi, with the religious Zionist political organization Mizrahi. And Berkovich knew the Mizrahi activist Zarach Varhaftig. And he informs Zarach Varhaftig, he says, hey, my buddy, a Dutch citizen, Gutwirt, he was able to get us these Curacao visa, whatever, not really visas, but these this sentence that looks like a Curacao visa, that no visa required for Curacao. And it doesn't say the second half of the governor's permission, so that's left out, conveniently left out. And Warhaftig hears about it, and he's the rescue activist trying to get people out. So he approaches um, uh, he approaches Gutwirt and he says to him, can you ask Zwartendijk if he would use that for Polish Jewish refugees, if he would allow that? And Zwartendijk 
and and Gutfried goes to Zvartendijk and says, you know, w- w- would you do that? And Zvartendijk says, well, listen, I didn't receive any restrictions from the Decker. The Decker set authorized me to stamp people's passports or write in people's passports. No visa required for Curacao. I never got any number restrictions or citizenship restrictions. It's anyways for foreign citizens. Dutch citizens didn't need this visa because they can go to any Dutch territory. So, yeah, why not? That didn't seem like an issue. And Gutwirt in his testimony says that, he, that obviously Zwartendijk never imagined that he would be mobbed by thousands of people. Um, he thought, you know, another couple of people would want it. You know, these dubious visas. But they underestimated who Varhaftig was. Varhaftig goes ahead and sounds, spreads the word, and it goes, spreads to the desperate refugee community who sees the Soviet takeover. It's, this is the end of July. And he goes around to to to, or, to people and, and communities, and he goes around Lithuania and to yeshivas and to rabbis and activists and leaders and families. And Varavtig just, you know, runs around and begs and convinces and literally, you know, turns the world over to get people to take these visas. And many are skeptical. Many think it's going to end them up in Siberia as soon as they go for a Soviet exit visa with this useless piece of paper of Curacao, but they, 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 many are desperate and they listen to Varhaftig and they go ahead and get the visas. And thousands of people start mobbing Zwartendijk in Kovna and he keeps on going. He stamps and signs, stamps and signs. He can just, that little stamp, no visa required for Curacao, and then signs his name. He can process hundreds in a day with minimal effort and, um, and he goes in and does so and he Literally did that for a while. It's hard to know the exact number. I think it's like 2,300, 2,400, and each visa can cover an entire family. You're talking about thousands and thousands of people are saved as a result. Um, it's an incredible operation that goes on, and it's just for a couple of weeks, because by the beginning of August, the Soviets closed everything. So the whole story is over. Um, now, before we get to the Japanese part of this story, it's very important to clarify um, who was first, um, Mrs. Levin or Nathan Gutwirt. And um, in, in the families, they uh, justifiably have a lot of pride in their role in the escape. And, you know, if my family had that role in the escape, I would be very proud also. And therefore, there's a lot of, uh, you know, tension about who was first and who gets more credit. Luckily, I'm not related to either family. So um, I have the liberty of saying that both of them get credit. And we should really be excited and proud of both of them that they should get credit. I remember this, this machloikis between the two families actually reminds me of a tour I took many, many years ago. I was in Boston and uh, most people and their kids and go to Boston do fun things. Unfortunately, I was a nerdy kid, so I did the Freedom Trail of the of the history of the American Revolution in Lexington and Concord. And the uh, tour guide was telling us about the battles of Lexington and Concord uh, and the shot heard round the world. And she told us that there's a big dispute between the towns of Lexington and Concord until today, which is the true shot heard around the world. Is it in Lexington or is it in Concord? Um, and she explained that, uh, I don't remember which one was, Lexington or Concord, one of the two, there was the first shot of the revolution was shot. But that might not be considered the shot heard around the world, because in the other town, whatever it was, either Lexington or Concord, there was the first time that an American officer 
ordered his men to shoot on the British, on the Redcoats. So that was an act of rebellion. That was an act of revolt. That was the revolution. And that is the shot heard around the world. So even though technically they may have fired shots in the first town first, but that wasn't a, an American officer telling his men to sh- fire on the Redcoats. That was just a, some sort of skirmish um, that, that just took place by accident. So I think it's very similar here. I think it seems um, that the Levins um, have quite substantiated their story that they were first, um, but the the idea that it spread to other refugees seems to come more from Gutwirt because he's the one who got it for his friends initially, and one of those friends tells the, tells about to Varavtig, and Varavtig is the one who made the whole story happen by spreading it around the community of Polish Jewish refugees who ultimately were the recipients of the Curacao visas. So both of them deserve credit and get credit and should be remembered by Jewish history as heroes who enabled and facilitated this escape. Um, and those are their respective uh, stories. We'll get back more to Gutwirt because his story doesn't end. He becomes a hero also in Japan. He's a, a, a and, and he also submitted a quite a bit of testimony about it and, and a, lot, a lot of information that we have about the story from him. But now we go to the next element of the story, which is the Japanese transit visas. Because now that you have these you know, dubious uh, uh, visas that come from the Curacao, which likely that Dedecker himself never believed that they would work. It's likely that Zwarten Dyke believed that they wouldn't work. And guess what? It's likely that... M- most or even all of the refugees who took them believed that they didn't work. They were just so desperate they were grasping onto anything. And now, in order to get to um, Curacao, they would need Japanese transit visas, because if you look at a map, you have to go, in order to get to Curacao, which is this little island off the coast of Venezuela. By the way, one of the reasons that the governor uh, of Curacao wasn't going to allow anyone in is because Curacao was of strategic importance during the war. Because Venezuela, as we know, is an oil-producing country, and it was then, I think it was actually one of the biggest in the world at the time, and many of the oil refineries were in Curacao. So the, uh, it was a strategic uh, importance, and you don't allow foreign refugees to in, you know, overwhelm uh, um, your, your place of strategic importance in oil refineries during wartime because that's how espionage happens. That's how spies infiltrate. So though the, government was kind of, the governor was kind of justified in not allowing, in saying that he would not have allowed uh, refugees into Curacao. As it happens, no refugees ended up in Curacao, so it's, it's irrelevant. But... The, the idea um, is in order to get there, you have to traverse the Soviet Union on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. You have to cross the Sea of Japan, go through Japan, and from Japan, either go to the Dutch uh, East Indies, which is today Indonesia, or to cross the Pacific Ocean and get to San Francisco, um, or to go down to, um, to Panama uh, and, and, uh, and, and cross over into the Caribbean and get to Curacao. So you need to go through Japan. So they needed Japanese transit visas, and especially since they were ultimately going to ask for Soviet exit visas, you need to have all the documentation in place before you approach the Soviets to request Soviet exit visas. So they go to the Japanese consul, Chiyuni Sugihara, also in Kavna, and he he starts to give them Japanese transit visas based on the Dutch uh, uh, Curacao visas that they all had. So he starts to give them visas. He sees they have Dutch Curacao. Now, did he believe that the Dutch Curacao visas are real? Were real? 
We don't know. It could be that he believed they were real. It could be that he saw right through it and saw that it wasn't, and he decided to give them transit visas anyway. The bottom line is, is that he agreed and he did to decided to 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 give those visas. And he also gave thousands of these visas. In fact, Sugihara was uh, such a hero that he even gave Japanese transit visas to some refugees who did not have a chance to get the Dutch Curacao visas. And that's a story we'll come back to later because um, that is where Gutwirt helps them out in Japan by going to the Dutch consul in Japan and getting them uh, uh, Dutch Curacao visas at a later stage. So uh, Sugihara gives visas to anybody who asks transit visas, um, but primarily based on the fact that they had these Curacao N visas. Now, um, the uh, this is all again in that same couple of weeks uh, at the end of July and the beginning of August in 1940. Uh, this whole story happens. Um, so if we take a step back and we try to assess the roles of everyone who played in this story, um, you know we most famously remember Sugihara. Uh, and if I'm a big fan of Sugihara. I think my Sugihara fan credentials are impeccable. I was in the mirror for 13 years and was, you know, the mirror is saved by Sugihara and I always was a fan of his story. Every group that I bring to Lithuania, I make sure to go to the Sugihara Museum in Kovna, um, you know, and I've read all the books about it and I, I've done the research. I'm a big fan of Sugihara. I think I was one of the only tour guides in Yad Vashem history that went to the tree, the, the Righteous Among the Nations Sugihara tree, and told his story there to, with groups. Um, so anything I say to qualify that is is not in a any way, God forbid, a critique, but it's just try to understand the story in context. I don't see how it's possible to see that Sugihara was the main player of the story. Um, it's... it's it, he. I mean, to start with, it's almost impossible to claim that he acted against the Japanese government. Um, if he acted in di against direct orders from the Japanese foreign ministry, he would not have been promoted afterwards. He was promoted after the Soviets closed the consulate in Lithuania. He was promoted to a position in Germany, which is the biggest ally of Japan during World War II. I think in Leipzig or even in Berlin itself. I mean, I have to double check that, but somewhere in Germany. Later on in Bucharest, which is another ally, he's in literally the most important diplomatic positions. He also was, um, you know, he wasn't even, he, he, he had other roles besides for being a diplomat. He was also a spy for the Japanese imperial government. The reason he was in Lithuania in the first place wasn't even for diplomatic reasons. The Japanese did not need a consulate in, in Lithuania. They needed a spy in Lithuania, and the consul was just a cover. He was supposed to examine German troop movements to see when they're going to invade the Soviet Union and report back to the uh, the Japanese government. Um, and presumably he filled that role later on in the war also. So he's promoted throughout the war, and he's only fired from the foreign ministry after the war. Now guess what? The entire Japanese government was fired after the war, and especially the foreign ministry, where oh, I think 96% or some crazy number of diplomats and foreign ministry officials were fired after the war. By whom? Not by the Japanese government, by Douglas MacArthur, who did a shakeup of the entire Japanese government and especially the Foreign Service because he was trying to get rid of all the Japanese imperial government people from the war. He was trying to uh, democratize Japanese society. He was trying to do a whole, that's a whole story of the history of Japan and what MacArthur did in, 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 and now that role and how he influenced the writing of the Constitution and, and all, and all that. But that's when Sugihara is fired. So it, it's 
almost impossible to claim that he was acting against direct orders from the Japanese government. To me, I don't understand how it's possible. Um, Also, um, he comes after the Dutch Curacao visas. Uh, So he plays a very important role. But if you'd ask me, the Dutch people, um, they instigated the process. They, They were the ones who gave this, and a very shaky visa at that also. They... They, they took a much bigger risk. Not only that, but Sugihara had diplomatic immunity. He was a real diplomat. Um, the Japanese and the Soviet Union did have diplomatic relations, so he did not take a real risk, uh, security risk, as far as the Soviet Union was concerned, whereas um, Zwartendijk and De Decker did not have diplomatic immunity because Holland did not recognize the Soviet Union. There was no diplomatic relations between the two countries. Um, and they got, it, they, rolled, they got the ball rolling, and... Uh, Sugiara is doing a fairly simple thing. He sees an end visa, and the Dutch government considers this an end visa. No matter if you believe in it or not, the Dutch government is standing behind their end visa of the no visa needed for Curaçao. So all he's doing is writing a transit visa on that. He said, you consider this an end visa? Okay, you can have a 10-day transit visa through through Japan. Um, so he's he's great, and he's a hero, and he's saved lives, but I think we have to put it in proportion. Um, I hope this doesn't sound like a controversial reassessment. I'm just trying to read history. It's very interesting in Sugi in in Gutwirt, in his test, and he's you could say he's biased because he's Dutch. Um, but but I just I want to relate what he said in his testimony. Um, he was asked, um, "Who do you consider the greatest heroes? Rank them. Rank the heroes of this story." And this is how Gutwirt himself, who was an eyewitness, first of all, by the way, he played down his own role. He said he's not a hero. He said all I did was try to save a couple of my friends. I didn't do anything. Um, very modest himself. Um, but this is how he ranked them. He said that the greatest hero of the story is Zarach Varhaftig, um, who spread the word and convinced people and begged people and and riled up everyone to get these visas no matter how uh, dubious they seemed. He's the one who initiated the idea of getting Zwartendijk to expand it uh, beyond just the limited circle of, of Dutch citizens such as Sternheim and Gutwirt and his friend Nussbaum and then a few of his Lithuanian friends. Zwartendijk uh, got it to all the, all the, all the Polish Jewish refugees and actually convinced them to go ahead and do it. He oversaw the whole process. So he, in Gutwirt's eyes, Zwartendijk was number one. Number two, according to Gutwirt, was De Decker because he was the the, the diplomat who uh, who got it going. Number three was Zwartendijk in Gutwirt's ranking, and number four was the Japanese government, <laughs> not even Sugihara, um, because because um, actually number four was the the Japanese the Dutch consul in Japan. We didn't get to that story yet. Divud. Um, um, which we'll get to hopefully next time or in two episodes, who saved further refugees who did not have the Curacao visas at that point. We'll get to him. And then he said the Japanese government, because they had these 10-day transit visas and the Japanese government allowed them to stay for eight, nine months. Um, And then he said, yeah, of course, Sugihara as well. Sugihara is a great hero as well. And Sugihara uh, assisted. And if he wouldn't have given these transit visas, he could have refused. And he decided not to refuse. He saw these people outside and he decided to help them, and he could have said no. So definitely Sugihara is a hero, and definitely he gets credit. And that's how he ranked them. Okay, and, and one can dispute good fear. No one has to take his word at gospel. I just want to break it down a little bit, because it's interesting. Uh, Sugihara received a Righteous Among the Nations uh, award from Yad Vashem in the State of Israel in 1985. 
Zvartan Dyke only received it in 1997 after much lobbying by his family and Gutwirt and other people. Um, the Decker, to the best of my knowledge, never received any uh, recognition. And of course, Varaftig is Jewish, so they don't deserve anything for helping other Jews. Um, so it's interesting how things work. Um, we played down the role of Varaftig for two reasons. Number one, because he was Jewish, and it's a much bigger deal if a non-Jew helps Jews during the Holocaust than if Jews helped other Jews during the Holocaust. So that's one reason. Another reason that we downplay Varaftig's role is because he was, uh, in the yeshiva community at least, is because he was a Mizrahi uh, Zionist uh, who, like we'll see in next episode, he went against he, he went against the consensus. Many of the rabbinical views at the time was to be very skeptic about these visas and to oppose the visas because these Curacao visas were seemed fake and they'd end you up in Siberia, which again pre-final solution. No one knew about the Nazi invasion. No one knew about the final solution. The worst thing that could happen was to be sent to Siberia. And as soon as you ask for a Soviet exit visa, they're going to send you to Siberia because you're disloyal to the Soviet Union. So we'll speak about that next episode, but that's another reason that Varhaftig's role has been downplayed because, you know, he went against the consensus and, you know, he ended up being kind of right. Um, but also it's interesting that the Decker's role has been, I guess because it wasn't personal. He was far away in Riga and it was just a bunch of letters that he authorized these things. Um and, and the face of the heroism was more Sugihara, of course, and also, to a lesser extent, Zvartan Dyke. So, of course, anyone could do the ranking differently, and obviously I, I respect all, all views, and I'm willing to, uh, to, 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 to you know, respect other views as well, but this seems to be uh, the facts of the story. Um, we, we haven't yet gotten to how the Mir gets involved. How does the Mir Yeshiva and other famous refugees, the Hamshan of Rebbe, the Tamchei of Chabad, the contingent of Yeshiva Sachmei Lublin, um, we have to break down which refugees got these visas and see how the Mir's role plays in this. And that we'll do next time. And we're going to do a deep dive next time. How does the Mir get involved when there's a rabbinical consensus against going for these visas? When the rabbinical position of Reb Chaim Isaac and Reb Aaron Cutler and Reb Lazio Finkel himself and every Everyone else was Sheva Al Taisa. Don't do anything. Don't these visas look fake? Asking for Soviet exit visas is, is just asking for a one way ticket to Siberia. And then comes a longer blade Malin of the Mir, and he says, Well, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to go against the consensus and we're going to get those visas. And that's going to be our story next time to try to fit the Mir into this whole picture. And of course, we'll probably get back to a little more wrapping up some loose ends from the story of the Curacao visas and Waraftig's role and the Sugihara's role as well. So this is Yehuda Gaber, the Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGaber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.